0: Our goal for the last week, this week, and next week is to look at what I call keys to unlocking the revelation. The revelation, we call it of John. It's the revelation of Christ. It is a wonderful story given for the comfort of His church. Last week, we began with the first eight of the keys, seven to begin with. Seven keys that are somewhat simple, straightforward, very important, but we looked at seven important principles followed by an eighth that really opened up a whole new perspective of thought for many, 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 many of us. The eighth key actually allowed us to begin to contrast a very modern and Western perspective of how to interpret the book of Revelation as I would describe it and what I call a more historical and biblical perspective. Godly, evangelical people differ on these issues. But if you listen to the tape from last week, you would know that there is some reality to the fact that this truly is modern, this first chart. And you have your charts in your notes. You can look at that to follow. But this top chart really was first believed to have been given from God by its originator in the mid-1800s as a rediscovered truth since the beginning of the church. And all the history of the church has believed this lower chart until that time. Now, as I say that, let me explain that there are variations of both of these. And I'm going to be somewhat simplistic on purpose because I don't want to get it too confusing. But let me walk through these two again just so If you come in for the first time, you've got the big picture. Here's the way it looks. Many today are holding the idea that Christ comes, and then from that point on, we have what's called the church age, and we would be in that church age right now, soon to await what's called the rapture, where we are taken up to be with the Lord, and all Christians should believe in the rapture. I think some think, oh, we don't believe in a rapture the way we're teaching here. Say, oh, of course we believe in a rapture. It's when that rapture takes place, the rapture meaning the gathering of God's people to be taken up to be with Christ. This particular modern Western position says then there's going to be a tribulation, and of course many people put this tribulation in a var- variety of different places. There are different, again, different options through this, but typically that we are taken out of this world, and during this time, there's going to be great tribulation for seven years after which Christ is going to come back to this earth. He is going to bring all of those that were raptured up with him, and any that have come to Christ through these years of tribulation will now begin to reign on this earth with the reign of Christ, and during this time called a millennium, during that thousand-year period of time, Satan is going to be bound. So you'll hear three things that take place then. Satan is bound, Christ reigns, and Christians reign on this earth from this first perspective. Then there's going to be a judgment day. God is going to reward his followers, and he is going to punish those who resist him, and those who are his followers will remain on this earth for a new heaven and a new earth. Now, in contrast to that, I suggest to you the historical position is more biblical. This particular position, and again there are variations on this, believe it or not, but Christ comes and at that moment starts the church age and it goes all the way until a time when the rapture, the second coming, and the judgment simultaneously take place. These three events, the same place. And during this church age down here, we have tribulation, and it's the time in the Bible called the millennium. So two totally different views of looking at it. What you have to do is study, determine what you think to be most biblical. Now, we said last week that as we examine this first approach, That we put up a scripture here that everyone agrees refers to the rapture. We put up one that talked about the second coming. We talked about one that obviously refers to the judgment day. And we found that in each of those texts, and those texts are in your notes there in your chart, the top chart. In each of those texts, you find that, interestingly, there is a gathering of God's people and there is a trumpet that sounds It raises the question, is it one and same trumpet, or are they three different trumpets? This perspective here says three different trumpets. This one here says, no, it's the same trumpet that's being described three different times. What we found to be intriguing is when we went to 1 Corinthians 15, which we all say, okay, this passage is talking about the rapture, and we found out that it too has a trumpet and a gathering. But the intriguing thing was the trumpet here in this text Referring to the rapture is called what trumpet? The last trumpet, which raises the question, how can it be the last trumpet if it's here in the first of three trumpets, and which is only one of many biblical reasonings that we offered last week to suggest that the rapture, second coming, and judgment are in the future to come as one simultaneous trumpet and gathering. It's just a matter of perspective. If you're looking from the perspective of the Christian, the Christian is raptured during that time. If you look at the perspective of what's happening with Christ, it's his second coming. If you want to look at the perspective of what's happening to non-believers at that time, it's the judgment day, same trumpet. Now we are going to be looking at a ninth key that is very important. And before I get into the ninth, I'd like to suggest that you not get worried if you don't follow every detail throughout these keys. You will not follow it all, more than likely. I did a little exploration last week after my messages. I was concerned. I wondered, you know, did people follow? Did they not? And so I went to a very select choice people that I thought I would use to help me decide whether it was connecting or not. And those particular people I picked were some of the slowest people that I know. <laughs> and I was greatly encouraged that even they got the big picture. So if they got it, I'm sure that most of you were able to. But please don't sit there and say, well, that's a little beyond me. I, no, you'll get the big picture. You've already got the big picture. The big picture is simply this. Are there three different events called the rapture, the second coming, and the judgment day, or is there one event? that is inclusive of all three. Everybody understands it's this or it's that. Now, some of the detail you won't, but at least every person is going to be introduced to another perspective and will not simply embrace this perspective because it's the only thing you've ever heard. And Then when we end the message, I'll underscore in a major way why this is so absolutely important in your spiritual pilgrimage now let's look at number nine we're going to talk today about the millennium the millennium is to be understood as the period of time between the resurrection ascension and seating of christ and the return of christ at the end of the world all that's saying is we believe this to be the millennium from the cross all the way to the judgment in your lower chart Now, the word millennium means thousand years. It's a Latin term, mille, thousand, annus, years. Guess how many times or how many different texts in the Scriptures we find the thousand years mentioned? You know what the answer is? Only one text. If you and I want to know what the Bible teaches takes place during the millennium, We have to find everything we will learn from the one text where it's mentioned. And so I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6. I've already mentioned the three things that should be included in the millennium. That is Satan being bound, Christ reigning, and Christians reigning with him. And the reason we come to those three is those are the three things that are found in this text that take place. And so, let's read it together. Verses 1 through 3 describe about Satan being bound. I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, I'm going to pause here. Some of you don't have any problem writing in your Bibles. Let me encourage, if you do not, to maybe circle the words key and great chain, at least "chain." They will be important to us. Verse 2, and they laid hold of the dragon. Kids, you tell me, who do you think the dragon is? Satan. The dragon is Satan, and we don't have any question about that because you go a little further and it says, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Circle the word bound him. And, of course, there's your term, thousand years. It's the first of three times we'll see thousand years in this text. Verse 3, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. And then these are very key words, so that. You may circle the words, so that. He should not deceive the nations any longer. Let me encourage you, underscore the words, he should not deceive the nations any longer. That is, until the thousand years were completed after these things he must be released for a short time then it goes on to say and I saw thrones circle the word thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls and circle the word souls the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now that reigned with Christ assumes that Christ is reigning and that we are reigning with him or that Christians are reigning with him. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. And circle the word first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. And there it is again for a thousand years. Reign with him. Now, two questions have to be answered from this text. One is what is meant by these, by these statements? Satan is bound, Christ is reigning, and Christians are reigning. What do we mean by those things? The second question, where do these things take place? If Satan is bound, if Christ is reigning, if Christians are reigning, is it up here in the first chart during what's called the millennium? Or is it down here in this second chart? in the area called the millennium. Where are these things taking place? Well, let's examine all three. Majority of time will be given to this one called Satan is bound. Verses 1 through 3, we come to the end of verse 2, and it says, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him. Remember I said circle the word so that? That's a hena clause in the Greek, and it tells us the reason why something happens so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. It is the only thing that we read in the text that describes the binding of Satan. He is bound from one thing only, and that is deceiving all the nations. Now, the word nations is the word ethne in the Greek language. We get ethnic from it. It can rightly be translated nations, but it can also be translated Gentiles. So here we're reading that, wait, he is bound, he was free at one point, now he, is, now he is bound from deceiving all the Gentiles or the other nations besides Israel, Gentiles, meaning that, oh, there's been a time, if we're up here in the first chart, where would that be, where he is bound, where does that stop that he's bound or begin that he's bound? Or if we're down here, what I'm going to suggest is that binding is taking place right here at the time of the cross. That that's when the binding takes place. We know this much. Prior to the cross, all the nations were deceived. We know from Scripture that after the cross, the nations began to come to Christ. Gentiles were included. Wow. Perhaps it gives a little understanding to texts like Acts 14, verse 16, and in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Various psalms in Psalm 2 and Psalm 72, we have prophecies of Christ being given all the nations. It begins to take shape here. If you believe that it's here on this lower chart at the cross that this is taking place it begins to make numerous scriptures begin to make sense. We move on to another text that helps us understand this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, Revelation 12. If you were with us last week, you would remember that key number 3 says that the story of Revelation is told from the cross to the very end of Revelation. Of the new heaven or time of the new heaven and new earth, seven different times, and that one of the beauties of that is you can stack those on top of each other and look at multiple texts that are describing the very same event, and it's called cross referencing, and it helps us to gain understanding about the one text that we may not quite understand until we put the others with it. Now, when you read chapter twelve, you tell me, is this not describing the very same event that we have read? about in chapter 20 it goes like this and there was war in heaven Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waging war they were not strong enough there was no longer a place found for them in heaven please don't be so naive to say oh I guess that's referring to when I heard Satan one time was a good angel and he became a bad angel and he got thrown out of heaven and this must be it can't be Keep reading, you'll see. No, it cannot be. And the great dragon was thrown down. That is a key word. you know why? It is the exact same word in the original language as we found in Revelation chapter 20. It's obviously referring to the same thing. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, the same terminology, same wording, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Boy, it's just the same description. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, not later, not before, but now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Do you remember the key? Key is used to talk about authority. You may remember in Scripture where it says, and I give to you, referring to the Apostles, I give to you the keys to the kingdom, the authority over the kingdom. You're the authoritative leadership of the church. Then it goes on to say, the authority of his Christ have come, and the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. What has Satan been doing until this time in the heavenlies? I'll tell you what he's been doing. He's been accusing the brethren. That's not a good angel. That's a bad angel. It's the serpent of old. And what he's doing is he's saying to Almighty God, you have promised a Messiah. You keep saying there's going to be a Redeemer. You base all of your grace on the fact that a Redeemer is coming, but he hasn't come yet, and I'll stop him. If I have to kill every male-born child, I'll stop him. I will stand in the way, and he has not yet come, and therefore I accuse those that you're saying are freed by your grace. It takes the cross to be able to pay the penalty and there's been no penalty paid and therefore there can be no redemption. And now it says he's cast out at this point. Why? Because the cross has now happened. No longer can he say, I can accuse the brethren. There is no redemption. Redemption has come. And now it'll describe that redemption. Verse 11, and they overcame him. How? How? Because of the blood of the Lamb, it's at the cross that he's thrown down. And because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death, it's because of the gospel that's going out, that's beginning in the life of Jesus, and it's finally completed at the death of Jesus, that now all the nations should be able to have that gospel doing its work. And it says, and because of the word of their testimony, they did not love their life even to death. They are your martyrs. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Let me tell you, now he is angered. He is ready to do battle. Now, if you contrast verse 9 of this chapter 12, Where it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, and verse 3 of chapter 20, and threw him into the abyss. It's the very same event. In John chapter 12, we add to that Gentiles, ethne, have come to Philip. And they're saying, Philip, we want to see Jesus. A sense of saying, maybe we could follow him. What about us? Philip goes to Jesus and says, what about them? Listen to the response of Jesus. Now, there's your word, now, judgment is upon the world, this world. Now, the ruler of this world shall be, what's the word, cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Having to do with the gospel now, going out, drawing all men myself cast out same root word as thrown in two found in both revelation 20 and revelation 12 then there's another text in luke chapter 10 17 and 18 this is when 70 disciples of jesus were going out and they were proclaiming the gospel and something's beginning to happen this is immediately before the death of jesus not long before And Seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he said to them, Yep, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Falling from heaven. Now, one last text on this issue of Satan being bound, and that is in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 24 through 29. Matthew chapter 12. This is a time where Jesus has cast out a demon and the scribes and the Pharisees were critical and saying he's doing it by the power of Satan. It's Beelzebul. That's how it's happening. He's not of God. And so verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Now, here's what, this is kind of interesting to me. What he's doing is saying, you guys are so illogical, it's ridiculous. You think that I am casting out Satan by the power of Satan? And you think that makes sense? So he says it like this. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided himself against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Ooh, kingdom means reign, the reign of God. And then it says, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first, what's the next word? Binds. Binds the strong man. Who's the strong man? Satan. The same word bind that we see in Revelation. Then he will plunder his house. In other words, Satan is bound by the work of God's Spirit working through the gospel. Even before the crucifixion, the binding is beginning. The gospel is beginning to go out. Christianity will soon spread throughout southern Europe, and then it's going to go to the entire continents. The chain that binds Satan is the gospel. I'm intrigued by the stories that come from other cultures where the gospel has just entered. You hear all these amazing demonic stories of all these things that are happening and all these wild casting out. And Do you know what, naively, so many Christians here do. They say, oh, that's what we need to see happen here. If we'll just believe and we'll trust and we'll pray. The same things we should see happen here and we try to see these castings out in all this same way as if it will happen the same. Do I believe those things are happening? Absolutely. But what we fail to understand is the very truth of these texts that here's a place where the chain has never been, the gospel has never been there. And here the evil one free to have his reign and so forth. And then here comes the gospel, and there is a massive war. There is a massive war for dominance, but the chain binds. And we would expect to see the type of things that happen in those situations. Maybe to think of it this way, at the cross, the war was won. But much like in World War II, June 6, 1944, we won the war, but the year that followed, untold numbers of casualties. The cleanup was still in operation. Many people died. Has Satan been defeated? Absolutely. Now, he's on this earth. He's defeated, but he is is in a state of mind. He's delirious, and he's doing everything he can. Is he free to roam about and devour whomever he wishes? As he tries, well, he's certainly under the domain of God and not just anybody who wishes, but is he free roaring about seeking whom he can devour? Absolutely. Can he blind the eyes of the unbelieving? He still can under the authority of God, though. But he is free. He is reigning in so many ways. The only thing it says that he is not permitted to do is to no longer deceive the nations. And so his reign is a defeated reign. He's no longer in the same position he was. He's been cast down from the heavenlies. But he's on this earth even working until, until this day. Another way maybe to put it is he cannot destroy the church as a mighty missionary organization heralding the gospel to all the nations. In other words, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against him. So we come to Satan being bound. The question that you and I have to answer is it here in this top chart, the millennium, that he's bound? And therefore, we're over here saying, boy, he's not bound yet. We're not bound, but we got to live with it. But one day's coming and we'll get out of this tribulation, lost world will go through it, and then he'll be bound. Or can we say, no, he is bound right now as we speak? That's the issue. Now we look at number two Christ reigning for a thousand years. Most of us have been taught that that rain is an earthly rain, the first top chart. That's what we've heard. Nothing in Revelation 20, or anywhere else for that matter, says that the rain is on earth. It is assumed by many, and then Scripture is read into that, assuming that it is the case. My question is, where does it say in Scripture that it is an earthly rain? I don't think we find it. In fact, Verse 4 of chapter 20 says, And I saw the thrones. you remember Easter? We talked about the thrones, the 24 thrones, representing all the Christians who are in heaven. Thrones in the Scripture are in the heavens. They're not on earth. Nowhere do we see other texts where the thrones would be on earth. And then particularly you come to the word souls in verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Souls... The term souls is never used elsewhere in Scripture of an embodied individual. It's always the individual outside the body, and that's in the heavenlies. That's in the heavenlies. Chapter 6 of Revelation, we won't turn there. It gives the same description of these martyrs that follow. You know it's talking about the same thing, and those martyrs are in heaven. Why would we not believe that this is referring to a time that would be in heaven. It even gives understanding to passages like Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, where Jesus said, all authority has been given. It's already given. Given to him in heaven and on earth. All authority means that he is reigning fully. It's not now a partial reign, and in the future, a great, perfect reign to come. No, he is reigning now in the heavenlies. It also gives understanding to Stephen as he's being stoned in Acts 7 and he sees the Son standing at the right hand of God. Or in Acts 2, Peter's great sermon in 29 through 32, he identifies the resurrection of Christ as the time that Jesus would be seated on God's throne. Well, when he's seated there, he is ruling and that means he is reigning. And so we now have the question, what would lead us to think that this period in the top chart called the millennium should be an earthly reign. Why will we not assume from Scripture that it's now ongoing and it is a heavenly reign? Leads us to the third question, and that is Christians reigning for a 1,000 years. That comes from our text 4 through 6. You come down to verse uh, 4 at the end, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. It's just described the martyrs and all of the Christians, and then it says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I'm going to suggest that verse 5 is a parenthetical expression. It's as if he's saying, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And oh, by the way, the rest of the dead, non-Christians, they don't come to life till a thousand years are completed because that's when they're judged here at the end of our bottom chart. And it goes on to say, this is the first resurrection, not referring to the dead, but those that have come to life, reigning with Christ. And it continues on to say that first resurrection, blessed and holy, is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Now, the question is, what is the first resurrection? There are some people who interpret that to mean the, uh, uh, the time when the soul goes to heaven. Maybe. Others, it's a time when a person becomes a believer. Maybe. Maybe. I think it is far better to assume that the first resurrection is referring to the first resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That's the first resurrection. And to support that, the word resurrection in the Scripture is always used of a physical bodily resurrection. Now, see if this doesn't give some meaning to Ephesians 2. When we come to verses 4 through 6, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and verse 6, and raised us up with him. That's participating in the first resurrection. And what did he do? He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Folks, the question, are we right now in this top chart in the church age, are we seated with Christ? Or do we have to wait till here when we're seated with Christ? Or do we believe that our full seating is right here, already going on where we are today? That's good news if we are. And I believe that's what the Bible would teach. Romans 5.17 says, And we will reign through the one Jesus Christ. And it refers to now, not later. Leaves us with the question, Why do we come to the idea that this must be an earthly reign? I don't know where it's gained, where it's understood to be. I can see that if somebody had this and assumed it would be, then maybe you could take this scripture and apply it there, but I don't think you take it from scripture, as best I can tell. Now, as we bring this to conclusion, there are two questions that remain to be answered, and they're important ones. One is, how can, we, how can it be that this is the thousand-year reign when it's already... 2,000 years since the death of Christ. We've already blown it by 1,000 years. How can that be? Well, I think the answer is that the 1,000 years is not to be taken literally. And we talked about taking Scripture literally versus figuratively last week. We gave the principle and understanding of that in one of our keys. Anybody would ask, what book of the Bible is numerology used the most, meaning taking numbers to have significance and And everybody would say, oh, the book of Revelation. And so you say, what does the number four refer to? And everyone would typically say, well, that would be creation. And what about six? By the way, what does six stand for? Man. Remember 666, the number of man. Seven. What would seven stand for? God, that which is divine. Twelve, the church, the twelve apostles and so forth. It's... that are in the thrones, the 12 thrones. And so we have numerology used throughout. Then we come to this chapter 20 and we see the term thousand used, the number thousand used, and for some reason we want to make that to be so literal. Oh, it is an exact thousand years. No, I would suggest that it is used figuratively, and it is done so other places in the Bible. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 10 we read these words. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Have you ever been driving through the countryside, seen cattle all on the hills, and you've been a Christian a while, and you've read this text, and you've, you've just had to wonder. So I wonder if that's one of the thousand. Oh, I bet it's not. There's so many millions of hills and millions of cows. What's the chance this is one of the thousand? But Maybe it is. No, we don't think that way. We say, oh, he doesn't mean a literal thousand hills or we come to deuteronomy 7 9 know therefore that the lord your god he is god the faithful god who keeps the covenant of his loving kindness to the thousandth generation to those who love him and keep his commandments oh don't we hurt for our those that follow us that are in the thousand and first generation oh he won't keep his covenant then will he he says only a thousand No, we say that's not what it means. It's used figuratively and certainly here to mean that which is very large, something that is exact, known of God certainly, but unknown to us a thousand years. The last important question. This can be a challenge. Whoa, what about the Scripture teaches that during this time called the millennium that we're supposed to have peace, so much peace that the ox the lion and the lamb and all the the lion they all are going to kind of be together and there's going to be peace and you think we're experiencing peace right now in this church age look what's happening right now overseas look what's happening in our own lands you tell me this is peace so you say where do you get this whole idea well it's out of isaiah if you looked at isaiah 11 verses 6 through 9 i won't read it all but it says and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will dwell with the kid will lie down with the kid and the calf with the lion and the cow with the bear you see all of those together so you keep going in the same book the same author and you get to chapter 65 and you get to verse 25 and it says the same things just repeating it the the wolf and the lamb shall graze together the lion shall eat straw with the ox and so forth now that's verse 25 of chapter 65 in the same text In the same context, you move up just a few verses to verse 17, and look what we find. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, for the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Why do we think that this is where the ox and the lamb and the lion and all are laying together, up here in the top in the millennium? Wouldn't we say that it's here It's the new heaven and the new earth that describes when that happens. But isn't it amazing how many of us think that all this is to take place in the millennium instead of the new heaven and the new earth? This scripture we're talking about is not describing chapter 20 or up here in this one, chapter 20 of Revelation. What it's referring to is Revelation 21 and 22. That's where that comes into play. So with that, we conclude. And here is my conclusion. Does this make a difference? Does it really make a difference? Are we arguing for argument's sake? Absolutely it makes a difference. Is this a major or a minor? It's a minor. Is this minor important? Absolutely it's important. How is it important? I'll tell you for me. I wrote this this morning. I just said, this this is how it's important to me. One. My theology of demonic activity is greatly shaped by the view that I hold. And let me tell you, I'm hearing some of the most bizarre, wild, unbiblical thoughts about demons and what they're doing and how we're going to fight them and what we've got to stop. And I'm hearing all this stuff, and I just go, oh, no. Don't believe. That's the popular thought of today. You're getting it from novels. Get it from the Bible, what demons are doing today and how they act. My understanding of the benefits that I have as a Christian are based on whether or not I'm reigning with Christ right now or whether I'm waiting one day to reign with him. My understanding of God's control, we've been talking about the control of God, my understanding of God's Christ's control is determined by whether I think Christ is reigning now or whether not yet in full, but one day he really reigns. My boldness and confidence in witnessing is impacted by my view of whether Satan is bound from deceiving all the nations. I'm so glad that I can go out with the chain and say, thank you, God, Satan's bound from deceiving all the nations. And lastly, my hope for the church As impure as it is in terms of its problems and struggles, my hope for the church is so enhanced that it can be a prevailing church that the gates of Hades shall not even prevail against it. Why? Because Satan is bound. The implications are great. Don't be one that says, it really doesn't matter what you hold. This is important stuff. The implications are horrendous. They are so major. We need to know the truth, and the truth sets us free. Next week, we'll look at the tribulation, and we'll look at the Antichrist. Would you read the book of Revelation this week? Just start reading it. See what you're seeing. And then the following week, after next week, we'll get into chapter 6 and 7. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for truth that sets us free. We pray that we would be more noble than the Bereans, as we read in Scripture, who studied for themselves to find out. They didn't believe because a particular pastor believed something or even a particular book said something, but because they found it to be in your word. Lord, I pray for the many of us here that are not clutching on to Views of the Bible because we so much see them in the scriptures, but because we have so much emotionally at stake. We've taught these things, we've believed them, and we want to keep believing them. Lord, we know how some of these thoughts of the more modern approach uh, are very hopeful thoughts that we wouldn't go through the tribulation and so forth, but God, we know we're going through struggles. We know the pains in this world. God, what we really want to know is that we are reigning with you. We want to know that you're reigning and we want to know that the evil one is truly bound from deceiving the nations. Father, may that so impact us that our theology of life would be so shaped that we would live as if we're reigning. We would honor you knowing you're reigning. And we take that chain of the gospel, move out into the world in such a bold, bold manner because we know the evil one can no longer deceive all the nations. Thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we say it even though in brief, the gospel that we give you our unrighteousness. Christ, your son, pays for it on the cross. We are imputed with his righteousness and we're made right with you. Would you draw any to yourself? that would now say, God, you're so big. This world is so grand. I want to be a part of your family, your church that prevails. Thank you for hearing us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.